First Thessalonians chapter one, beginning in verse five, it says. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There are many unique attributes of Paul's little letter to the Thessalonians. As I shared last week, the letter is considered the first Pauline epistle retained for inclusion in the New Testament after Paul had come through the Bosphorus to the northern part of Greece, which is Macedonia, making his way to Philippi. You will remember that there he was incarcerated and supernaturally released. He made his way to Apollonia and Amphipolis and then to Thessalonica, where he preached the gospel a minimum of three weeks possibly longer, and then made his way to Athens, spoke there, went to Corinth, and from Corinth, he writes this little note to the men and women that he had met earlier. The letter lays out the foundation for Paul's vision of the church. It communicates his philosophy of ministry for the church. And the letter gives us a peek at what you and I have come to call the rapture of the church, a, a first musing on the Lord's imminent return. But the coming of Jesus was never to make the Christian less diligent in his or her own ministry or vocation. The knowledge that Jesus could come back at any moment wasn't to prompt you to abandon everything that you were doing, but rather to motivate you to do all that you could for Christ now. In five short chapters, Paul will address new converts in chapter one and young pastors in chapter two and suffering Christians in chapter three and tempted and uninformed Christians in chapter four and sleepy Christians in chapter five. Paul will paint a portrait of a church that is infectious in joy and undeniable in power and downright communicable when it comes to praises in the Holy Spirit. We might even go so far as to use the term contagious in their Christianity when it comes to accepting each other and affirming one another in being real rather than hypocritical of being supportive of one another and being givers rather than takers. Paul's prayer in verses two and three for the church prompt Paul's progress report. He talks in verse three of their work of faith and their labor of love and their patience of hope. He gives the illustration of election in verse four, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, your election. And now Paul's attention will concern the testimony of the church in verse seven, so that you became examples. And so he's going to talk about the characteristics of their example or testimony and the consequences of their example or testimony. Most of you know that the Bible is a book about testimonies. The Bible is a book about people who leave a certain way of living and embrace a new way of living. The Bible is a book about the testimony, if you will, of Enoch, the testimony of Noah, the testimony of Abraham, the testimony of Isaac and Jacob, of Joseph and Judah, of David, of Isaiah and Elijah. One famous preacher would always 
talk about that in the world in which we live, men and women look for elevation and titles. He would say something like, it was wicked Queen Jezebel who had a title. But it was Elijah, the prophet of God, who had the testimony of God. Everybody has a testimony. You have a testimony. But what you may not know is that the church has a testimony. Congregations can have a testimony. The church in which I received Christ as Savior, Calvary Chapel, had a reputation in the 1970s of a church where thousands of young people could come and they could hear the gospel. It was at Calvary in the late 60s and the early 70s that there's this massive outpouring of God's Holy Spirit and the whole culture is in revolution. But so is the church. A group of young people embrace a new way of praising God. We called it contemporary Christian music. And and you guys are the benefactors of a couple of generations now of music being made. Calvary Chapel was a place where you could hear the gospel and receive the gospel. But it was also a place where you could sense the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to transform a life. And remember, that becomes the very definition of witness or testimony. It is the reality that lives can change. You know, as a matter of fact, this afternoon, we're going to be having a baptism. And one of the things that we feature at our baptisms is the opportunity for men and women, young and old, to get up and give their testimony. They talk about how they used to be this particular way. And now they've come to Christ. That tradition continued with churches like Harvest Fellowship with Greg Laurie, which had the testimony of being a church that gives the gospel and people would be saved. Or the the testimony of the church that I came from in Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque. It's one of the great teaching churches in all of America. Other churches brought the testimony of worship, discipleship, places where missionaries are sent. Our church has a testimony. You know, often people find their way to our church and I ask them, how did you find out about the church? And there's nothing that I love more than to hear the testimony of men and women who go to this church about what God has done in your life and in your family. You see, the testimony of the church at Thessalonica was a testimony that here was a church that had ministers who preached the gospel. This was a church that was willing to hear the gospel and receive the gospel. This was a church that was willing to be transformed by the gospel. And in verse five, it says, Paul writes, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul speaks of our gospel. He writes about that in another letter called First Corinthians. And in chapter 15, verse 1, he writes and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep when he writes and he says, Jesus Christ died for our sin and that he rose from the dead. He isn't just talking about a religious statement or a theological proposition. He's talking about in time and in space, a real Jesus came and he really died on a real Roman cross and he rose from the dead. He said the disciples were witnesses. As a matter of fact, After his resurrection, over 500 people saw him all at once, and most of them were still alive when Paul wrote these words. The Bible insists 
that we admit that we've sinned against God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible asks you not only to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of a savior, but to believe in Jesus, that Jesus really did come, that he really did die, that he really did rise from the dead to confess him as Lord. Like it says in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, that if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. And Paul wasn't content to simply argue in the synagogue. He wasn't content to simply go door to door in the community. Paul presents a gospel that is heard with the ears, but it's received in the heart. And Paul enters their home and then he enters their hearts and then he enters their lives. Paul and his partners didn't serve the church to their own advantage. He didn't come to take advantage of them or to rip them off. Paul would later write to the Corinthian church and say, hey, did I make gain of you? In other words, did I take advantage of you? Did Titus make gain of you or did were we in this for what we could get out of it? Paul reminds them we weren't here to take advantage of you. But rather to impart to you that which was given to us life. And love and hope and a future. No wonder these people love Paul so much. And no wonder he loved them so much. You see, the model church consists of sinners who are saved by grace. But make no mistake about it, a church is not a church unless it preaches the gospel. A church is not a church. Unless that gospel is not only taught, but received. As a matter of fact, Paul has already described a salvation that begins in God and continues in God's love that involves the father and the son and the spirit involves faith. And that results in a transformation, not only of thinking, but of living. The gospel was preached, know what Paul says, with power and in the Holy Spirit and assurance. And this assurance is deeply rooted in God's grace. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for you've been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. Paul preaches and proves that Christ Jesus is the Messiah and the people believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he isn't a charlatan. And you'll notice it talks about with the power of the Holy Spirit and it talks about assurance, but there's not a single mention of miracles in the book of First Thessalonians. Well, does that mean that there were no miracles? There quite possibly were miracles. But the thing that that this text is drawing attention to is the miraculous power of the gospel heard, believed, received, and then transformed. Paul and the others not only preach the gospel with power and not only preach the gospel in the Holy Spirit and assurance But their lives bore witness to this message. You know, it's one thing for a person to hear a message of hope and ask and answer the question, I wonder if I believe that. But it's another thing to witness the transformation right before your eyes. As people that you grow up with or live with, their life is changed and their heart is changed and their speech is changed and their circumstances are changed. And so not only do they have ministers that preach the gospel. But these are ministers whose lives are consistent with the gospel that they're preaching. And look what it says in verse six. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. The church at Thessaloniki heard the gospel and believed the gospel and then became followers of the Lord and of the apostles. Think for a moment. 
If you look just a little bit ahead in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse two, it says, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. What was the conflict? They had been beaten severely in Philippi. You've got to understand something. They're coming with a message that is almost too good to be true. But nothing has changed about that message. There are still people who believe it's too good to be true. You're kidding me, right? God will forgive me in Christ. God will cleanse me in Christ. You mean all I have to do is admit that I'm a sinner and receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ and believe that his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead will somehow cleanse my heart and bring the darkness out of my heart and the wickedness out of my heart. How are you serious? It's still hard to believe. One of the characteristics of the model church was its willingness to hear the word and then continue in that word. As a matter of fact, in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, if you just read a little bit ahead, it says in verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as... The word of men, but as in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. In other words, you not only heard the gospel, but you believed the gospel and you believed it as like like a drowning man needs to be rescued, like a thirsty man needs water, like a desperately dark person needs the light. They were eager For the word of God. And by the way, that's the characteristic of a model church. They want the word of God. They want to hear the truth about God and the testimony of God. And when you look in verse six, where it says, and you became followers of us. The word translated followers is the Greek word. Mimitei. I love that word. The word is used seven times in the Greek New Testament. It's always translated followers in the old King James Version. It comes from a word, mimos, which meant to mimic. And it was sometimes used to describe the action of actors in in the New Testament times when you would describe a Greek play or a a Greek tragedy. The, the, The Greek actors would dress up in their costumes and then they would take on the persona of the people. They were mimos, mimicking, acting. By the way, both the verb and the noun in the New Testament always means in a good way and not in a farcical way. You know, we live in a culture and a society when when people mimic other people, it's usually not for good. You know, you've all heard me talk about my meeting with my with the former famous president of the United States and the president, you know, I shake his hand and he goes, you have really nice hair. Thank you, Mr. President. You know, you look strangely familiar to me. Have we met before? No, sir, we we haven't. I could swear I've seen you somewhere before. Why, you look like me. I go, no, Mr. President. um, We probably have something in common, though. We're both half white and we're both half trash. No, I didn't say that to the president. You can't say that to the president of the United States. That would just be wrong. That would be wrong. You know, I think that there's something inside of human beings that you watch them, you look at them, you mimic them. And remember, it can be done for good or it can be done for evil. And so the word followers 
falls short in giving us, I think, a complete picture. The word imitators is much more descriptive. In other words, they heard the gospel and they believed the gospel, but they weren't content to just hear and believe. Now they wanted to mimic the righteousness that's found in Christ and then and then follow, if you will, imitate Paul's spiritual walk. Isn't that what happened to you when you became a Christian? Do you remember when you prayed the prayer and, and you asked the question, Lord Jesus, is it true that you'll change me and transform me? And you get up in the morning and you, you understand something that you can talk to God now. You can open up your Bible and read it and understand it. There is a sense of joy and celebration knowing that you're going to heaven and not to hell. The new believers heard the message, believed the message and the messenger, and then they began to mimic their lives, follow their lives. When I became a Christian at Calvary in Southern California, I'll never forget. I went down and I would hear Pastor Chuck Smith teach. He would go. Turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians. Now, I've got to tell you something. When you're 17 years old and you're listening to Chuck Smith teach the Bible, you go, I wonder what Bible he's using. And I went up and I go, tell me the kind of Bible. that. Oh, this, this is a Schofield Bible. And um, I have used this for such and such a time. And so as a 17 year old, I'd been collecting coins, you know, since I was a little kid. And I sold part of my my coin collection so I could get a leather bound Schofield Bible exactly like Chuck's. But that wasn't the kind of imitating that Chuck was interested in. Chuck wasn't interested in me buying a Bible like his Bible and reading a Bible simply like his Bible. Chuck was way more interested in me reading it and understanding it and allowing it to become a part of my life and a part of my identity. And then to understand the gifts and the callings that God had placed on my life at Calvary Chapel. I learned to respect and follow mature believers who had walked the walk before me. This is something that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 13. Obey them that have the spiritual rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch over your souls. Your pastor shouldn't have to beg you to pray. To open up your Bible. To read it. But here's the real kicker. To believe it. To believe the promises of God. To believe it for your heart and for your marriage and for your family and for your circumstances. And so the model church becomes examples. Look what it says in verse seven. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia. Remember, Macedonia is the province of northern Greece. Uh, it's, it's now what you and I would call the, the modern Balkan states. It would be Macedonia um, and Achaia is the middle part of, of, of the Grecian peninsula. And so these are in the Roman world provinces or areas we would use them very much like in the United States of America when we talk about California or New Mexico or Colorado. This is a vast area of space that has an independent jurisdiction, if you will. And so he says so that you became examples and the word examples is the Greek word typos. You're going to know that word because it's come down in the English language as type or pattern or example. And so here Paul means it as a type or a pattern or an example. And you all know about my my love for coin collecting. And the coin collector actually studies dye impressions upon coins to determine their authenticity, their identity, their value. This word tipos would be a, a word that you would use to describe the engraving that you would make on these beautiful Greek coins and you would stamp them on a silver or a gold planchet and it would leave an impression on the metal that could be communicated to others. That's what he's talking about. 
the Lord Jesus Christ making a deep impression on your life. And then you making a deep impression on other people's lives. You know, when you meet someone and you're left with a deep impression that this person loves the Lord and they love them not in order to impress you, but they love the Lord because they've experienced grace and mercy. They've experienced peace and joy. You've met people who may have been bound by drug addiction or, 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 or sexual addiction. You, you meet people whose lives were a life of loneliness and emptiness and darkness and wickedness. And all of a sudden they believe the truth about Jesus Christ being able to change their life. And then their whole life is different. The same is true of churches. Just like An individual can be left with an impression the church at Thessalonica was a church zealous in its work, zealous in its labor of love, zealous in its testimony to the surrounding areas. And so the testimony of the church at Thessalonica was a church not content to simply keep the good news to themselves, but willing to share it with others. You probably realize That Christians either encourage or discourage one another. You've been in circumstances like that, haven't you? Where the people that you are around encourage you or they discourage you. You may have even been in churches. That you go to the church and you're not encouraged. In many ways, you might be discouraged. You go to the church and you're not good enough and you're not smart enough and you're not dressed right. I remember... Before I became a Christian, Mormon missionaries visited my door and they invited me to read the Book of Mormon and accept Joseph Smith as a true prophet of God. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't be a Mormon. Oh, no, you could be a Mormon. No, no, I I can't be a Mormon. No, no, you could be a Mormon. No, no, I I can't be a Mormon. You know, Donnie Osmond and Marie Osmond. I mean, Mormon people are so attractive. And this person said, no, seriously, you could be a Mormon. There are some of us who are unattractive. I didn't believe them. Even when you're talking about historical, biblical Christianity, I never in my wildest imagination believed that. That I could ever be a Christian. Because I'm, I'm not a good person. I'm a wicked, selfish person. But Paul uses the churches in Macedonia to stimulate and motivate because they are an example of love and they are an example of joy and they are an example of enthusiasm and they are an example of evangelism. They become a type and a picture and an influence on the whole area. And Paul refuses to cave into the idea that simply because the Thessalonians are brand new believers, that they can't comprehend what it means to have experienced a life of joy joy and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Guess what? You don't have to be forgiven for a very long time to want to experience it. If you've ever been guilty of something and then found innocent through Christ, you know what that's like. If you've ever woken up in fear and loathing of your life, you know what that's like. And in verse eight, look what it says for from the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. The expression sounded forth is a single Greek word. You're going to even know it. X echo. It's found only here in the Greek New Testament. The prefix X means out of. And, you know, the word echos. Echo. What is an echo? It's a sound or a noise. Remember, you've all done it. You've gone into a place and you go, hello, 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 hello. It's a sound that goes out and then comes back. 
Here, the idea means like the blast of a trumpet or the peal of thunder. It's like a great big voice that announces that something incredible is about to take place. In our culture, we call it movie man voice. My children are so good at this. Anthony and Jonathan, you know, they can go. Coming soon to a theater near you. You know, that, that, soul, that whole movie man voice. You know, that deep, resonant, thundering. You'll never be the same. You know, that kind of voice. The idea is that Paul preaches in Macedonia and Achaia, but the example of the believers in Thessalonica beat him to the punch. Remember what I said when I asked people, how did you find out about Calvary? And some people will say, well, you know, I have family and friends who go to Calvary and and they love the Lord and they love the word of God and they they love to serve the Lord. And and this is a place where they can go and grow in Christ. Isn't that an amazing testimony? The testimony of a church where you can go and grow and so wherever Paul would go, he would hear news of the amazing impact of the Thessalonian church was having throughout the Greek peninsula and perhaps throughout the whole Roman world. And look what it says in verse nine. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. In the old King James, it says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The word show of us or themselves declare concerning us is the Greek term apongolo. Now, you may not know that word off the top of your head, but it's descended from a word that you're very familiar with. Angelo, angelos. Angel, messenger. So here, the idea of the word is a speaker or a writer or someone who comes and reports or announces or declares. And so he's talking about for they themselves or declare concerning us what manner of entry. In other words, like talking heads, like a radio or a television ad, they're reporting from person to person and place to place the reality of what it meant To hear about God and hear about Jesus. As a matter of fact, what manner of entry or manner of entering is a single Greek word, isodos. It literally means to find a way in or find a way into. Have you ever talked to someone about Jesus? And their mind was closed and their heart was closed. And you wanted to find a way in. You wanted to find a way in. How can I find a way into your heart? How can I find a way into your thinking? How can I find a way where the barrier will drop, where the obstacle will come down? How can I find a way that you will open up your heart and consider the claims of Christ? That's what Paul is talking about. The Thessalonians dropped their guard and he found a way inside of their heart so that they would hear and understand. As a matter of fact, the word came to them like a trumpet. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, we were... Timothy and Silas and I, we were tooting our own horn. No, that's not what happened. The believers in Thessaloniki had experienced a real transformation, a real conversion. And that real transformation and that real conversion was noted. Look what it says. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. The pagan culture. 
of Greece and Rome was marked by idolatry. You might think, wouldn't it be wonderful to go back in time and space and visit these places and these people? And, you know, the answer is it really would be fun. But make no mistake about it. Paganism was wicked and miserable and empty and dark. And if I were to take one word and use it to describe paganism, the one word that I would use is fear. Fear. That's what pagan people did. They feared everything. They feared the sun coming up or the sun being blotted out. They, they feared the phases of the moon. They feared darkness and wickedness. They feared illness. They feared everything. They, they knew that unless the, the invisible forces that drove the visible forces that we see, unless you could somehow control those invisible forces, the visible forces that could control you could make your life. Miserable. And that was their world. If you watch the Science Channel or the History Channel, you might think the world of sacred temple prostitution and ritual sacrifice and pagan idolatry superstitious or fascinating or socially amazing as, as the ancient people try to grasp explanations for the world in which they live. And then all of a sudden you realize something that we live in a pagan world. We live in a world where people are constantly trying to explain how invisible forces affect them visibly. Paul knew the truth behind the statues and the temples, that the statues and the temples contained demonic powers, energizing people committed to rebellion against the true and the and the living God. An early church father named Augustine grew up in the world of pagan Rome, and it was paganism that informed his thinking and his living. He wrote, quote, my sin was this, that not in him, that is God, but in his creatures, myself and others. I sought for pleasure and for honor and for truth, and I fell headlong into sorrow and confusion and error. Remember, from a very early age, human beings are, are left with this clear impression. The whole world exists to satisfy me. To make me happy. Remember, moms and dads, that's the first great challenge that you have with your children, isn't it? To make them understand that the whole world isn't about them. Martin Luther understood. He wrote, whatever man loves, that is his God, for he carries it in his heart. He goes about with it night and day. He sleeps and wakes with it, be it what it may, wealth or self or pleasure or renown. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal understood it. He writes, quote, there is nothing so abominable in the eyes of God and of men as idolatry whereby men render to the creature that honor which is due only to the creator, unquote. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody understood. He writes, quote, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. The thing that you love the most. It may be something that you created. It may be something that you didn't create. You may love power. You may love wealth. You may love recognition. You might even love good things like your mother and father and your brothers and your sisters and your wives and your husbands and your children. But make no mistake about it. They were never meant to replace the love of God. We worship God. You know, in the ancient world, people loved ritual and they loved mystery and they loved magic and they loved entertainment. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Because the world in which Paul is writing this letter is clearly exactly like the world in which you live in. You live in a world where people are constantly trying to forget that there's a God who loves them and that there's a Jesus Christ who died for them. 
and the Jesus who rose from the dead to save them. And that you can be saved by grace through faith. And when the people of Thessaloniki abandoned idolatry, this no doubt led to alienation of family and friends and community and to opposition and persecution. Because you can imagine when a person at Thessalonica had their husband or their wife get saved, the person would say, I didn't count on this. I didn't know I was marrying some Jesus freak. Hey, what are you talking about? You know, you used to be fun. We used to be able to get up and we used to go to parties. We could go to the temple and we could in, engage in some fun. But now you're not fun anymore. People love wickedness and superstition. I'm not afraid anymore. Oh, sure you are. Let's do some tequila shots. No, I don't, I don't need to alter my state of consciousness. I don't need to medicate myself. You'll remember that no doubt many of them lost their jobs and they lost their family. When the gospel was preached and received in Jerusalem, it created a riot. And when Gentile converts came to Jesus, it caused a riot. Because remember, remember, faith is always tested. And you've got to understand something, the persecution and the opposition that they faced from their family and they faced from their friends and they faced from their culture was good. And let me tell you why it was good. Because they prayed more. They they leaned on the Lord more. They developed a greater and a deeper appreciation for Jesus. It made them Willing to separate from the world and unwilling to embrace superstition and wickedness and idolatry. And they said, you know what? I didn't leave one form of bondage in order to enter into another form of bondage. I want to know what it's like to live a life of mercy and grace and peace and joy. Do you think Paul began his preaching ministry in Thessalonica with a 10 week series series on why idolatry is not a good thing? I'm going to suggest to you he didn't. That doesn't mean that he didn't talk about sin and he didn't talk about the need for a savior. But Paul was much more interested in giving them something that they actually wanted and needed. Hope. Forgiveness. I have a granddaughter. And the way that you get something out of her hand is to put something better in her hand. If Vile is holding on to a quarter and I, I want her to drop the quarter, I'll go, sweetie, I'll give you a dollar for that quarter. She's no fool. She's going to take the dollar over the quarter. That's exactly how much it costs for Grandpa's kisses. She's saving money to go to Disneyland. But that's exactly what Paul is doing. The pagan people in Thessalonica had held fear in their hands. And Paul said, you can drop it and I'll place love in your hands. There was guilt in their hands. And he says, I'll place forgiveness in your hands. There was sorrow and depression and hopelessness. And he would place joy in their hands. You see, in order to truly understand what it means to turn to God and leave paganism. You have to be willing to leave wickedness and sin behind and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, it says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the term and to wait is anamino. Now, that's an interesting word, and it's only found here in the Greek New Testament. The other words are found, um, the, the prefix and, and the root word is everywhere. Mino means to abide. It means to dwell. It means to remain. Ana means up. The, the term, and to wait for his son, literally means wait up. It's... 
it carries with the idea of patience, confidence. It's the idea. I want you to think for just a moment. Many of you are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving all over the country and your family and your friends are going to come. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your good friends. And they're going to say to you, we're coming home for Thanksgiving. And you wait up for them. There might be a snowstorm. There might be a problem. There might be a trial. Barring whatever it is that may or may not get them from coming there, you wait for them with anticipation. Paul, as he's talking about this particular issue, about the imminent coming of Jesus Christ, it isn't to make a theological or an eschatological point. This is a person who's imparting to another group of people a confident expectation as you wait for the person that you love. We wait for Jesus, God's son from heaven, because Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the father. God raised Jesus from the dead. And so there are two new purposes that the Christian has who leaves idolatry and who embraces Christ. You have now a reason to live. You live to, to you live to serve Jesus and you have another purpose. You wait for him. I have a son who's in the army. And he's been gone a very long time. And one week turned into one month and one month turned into several months. And his wife, my daughter in law, waits for him. There's going to come a time, a specific day and a specific moment, and she will wait up. She doesn't just have a theology of hope. She has the earnest expectation that her husband is going to be reconciled to her. And we have an earnest expectation that our Savior is going to be reconciled to us. And so the church, the model church, is a church that not only preaches the gospel and receives the gospel and then is willing to follow the example of the, of the righteousness of Christ. They have a theology of hope. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon was fond of saying, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. Are you hurt? Jesus is the great physician. Are you confused? Jesus is the light. Are you lost? Jesus is the way. Are you drowning in lies? Jesus is the truth. Are you spiritually hungry? He's the bread who came down from heaven. Are you empty and lonely and parched? He's the living water that came that will satisfy you, that will spring up inside of you. Are you fearful of judgment? Look what it says in verse 10. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know what wrath is? It's the judicial pronouncement of guilt of God on a guilty world. Is the wrath to come, the great white throne judgment, is the wrath to come hell? I don't think so. I think what Paul is talking about is that there is going to come a time on the planet Earth when the planet Earth is judged for its wickedness and its rebellion and its dis disobedience and its unwillingness to embrace the gospel. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. The Christian has a new purpose. Paul reminds the believers in Thessaloniki, they've left idolatry. They're free to love and they're free to live the true and serve the true and living God and to wait for Jesus from heaven. You know what? Are you so preoccupied with the future that you've forgotten about your responsibilities in the present? Are you so preoccupied with the present that you've forgotten about the joy that awaits you as you anticipate the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back? The balance becomes both a rock and a lighthouse that marks the New Testament church and the believer's commitment. Chuck Swindoll put it brilliantly. He writes, the model church challenges, and I quote, the model church challenge, challenges us, quote, 
to a three way commitment to the saved, to the unsaved and to Christ. First, we must be willing to accept and support others in the family of God. Second, we must be involved with an avail- and available for those without Christ. And third, we must be free of any entanglements that pull us away from our Savior. These commitments summarize the three basic priorities of our church today. In a nutshell, they describe a church and a people who have the right stuff. The right stuff has to include A gospel that's preached and believed that results in a transformation of life. But it also has to mean a willingness to look outside of yourself to a world that needs Jesus. The model church believes the gospel. The model church serves the Lord. The model church has a theology of hope which includes a willingness to wait up for Jesus. To believe every moment of every day might bring the earnest expectation today Maybe this day my beloved will come. You know, one of the things that was typical of Calvary Chapel in the early days is a word that we would use to describe that earnest expectation. It was an Aramaic word, Maranatha. And it meant the Lord's coming. We used to sing a song. Maranatha, Maranatha, the Lord is coming back. We must prepare our hearts so that we can meet him. The master went away from us 2000 years ago and he left us with his promise to return. And how our hearts do long for him. We miss the master so. But we have to keep the faith. And let the fire burn. Have you kept the faith? Is the fire burning? What kind of a church is your church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. Lord, we want to be a church. A model church like the church at Thessalonica. Lord, we want a a church whose ministers preach the gospel. But we also want a church where the congregation preaches the gospel and receives the gospel and walks in the gospel. And Lord, we know that it can't be a church. It isn't a church. It can't be a church unless it believes the gospel. Unless it's willing to look out and take care of an unbelieving world. It's not really... A model church unless it believes, really believes that Jesus Christ is coming back. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray, we pray that you would waken inside of our hearts a love for you. Lord, that we're no longer content to just simply hear the message. Hear the message or even believe the message, but we want to hear it, believe it, and then walk in it. With a righteousness that betrays the reality that we really do live and love and long to see our beloved return. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.